Vice President Biden and I have known each other for a lot of years now, more than 40 if you're counting. We knew each other back when we were young and handsome and smarter than everyone else, but we're too modest to say so. We served in the Senate together for over 20 years during some eventful times as we passed from young men to the fossils who appear before you this evening. We didn't always agree on the issues. We often argued, sometimes passionately, but we believed in each other's patriotism and the sincerity of each other's convictions. We believed in the institution we were privileged to serve in. We believed in our mutual responsibility to help make the place work and to cooperate in finding solutions to our country's problems. We believed in our country and in our country's indispensability to international peace and stability and to the progress of humanity. That was the late Senator John McCain on October 16th, 2017, speaking about his old friend, Joe Biden. Biden had introduced him that day for a ceremony awarding McCain the Liberty Medal for his lifetime of sacrifice and service to his country. At the time, McCain was on his last legs. He had been diagnosed with the cancer that would take his life the following summer. But his words about Biden and their decades-long friendship leap out as though from another era, a time when political leaders from across the aisle really did respect each other and really did reach out to forge bipartisan compromises for the good of the country. We'll look back at the career of John McCain and the values he embodied with his longtime aide and alter ego, Mark Salter, author of a new book about his old boss, The Luckiest Man. And we'll talk to two top political reporters, Rick Klein of ABC News and Brian Murphy of McClatchy Newspapers, about what to expect in next Tuesday's U.S. Senate races on this episode of Skullduggery. because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, you listen to McCain talking about Biden, and all I can think of is the opening scroll in Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's language like that that you don't hear hardly ever these days of respect for somebody on the other side of the political aisle, of doing your duty for your country. It is really worth at this moment, I think, on the eve of this, you know, polarizing election in a polarized country to think back about John McCain. I've got my own memories. I remember on the uh, Straight Talk Express in 2000, in the bus in Carolina, South Carolina, for that key primary, John McCain versus uh, George W. Bush. And uh, McCain was 
available to everybody, willing to answer questions about anything. And, uh, you know, on the bus was Salter, was John Weaver, was Rick Davis, was Mike Murphy, all his uh, political crew. And one more that I think is is worth mentioning, because it was the last time I ever interviewed McCain. We're going to talk about this with Salter. And it was about Syria. And talking to McCain about the uh, atrocities of the Assad regime, and I had written a story about these Caesar photos, these photos smuggled out of Assad's prisons showing the tortured victims, emaciated detainees. They were images straight out of the Nazi Holocaust. And I'll never forget this. McCain told me he has those pictures on his desk and he looks at them every day. And um, that's not something you, you hear very often. Uh, you know, I was overseas uh, during the 2000 campaign, so I never got a chance to go travel on the Straight Talk Express. I did get a little taste of it in 2008 when McCain was running again in New Hampshire. And this was when he was this was his really his comeback because he got, I think, trounced in in Iowa. And then things started to turn around in New Hampshire. And I got on the bus with him uh, and a bunch of other reporters sat next to him and he was just relishing the moment. He just, he was in good spirits because things were beginning to turn his way and there was nothing he seemed to want to do more than be, you know, taking questions from a bunch of reporters. And what I remember was there was this kind of just sort of carefree, kind of willing to, you know, to say what he really thought, right? That was the straight talk part of it. And even in 2008, that seemed like he was a, a man at a time that, that, Politicians just didn't do that very much at the time. And I think, you know, your two stories about the state, uh, Straight Talk Express in South Carolina and then the Caesar photos and, you know, his kind of conviction about, you know, human rights and those issues, I think those two things are related in a way. And it is that someone who, you know, really is principled and really does have these kinds of strong convictions about right and wrong and what the point of public service is, is going to be more confident about being out there and mixing it up with reporters and being in the arena, which was the phrase that he and Salter always talked about uh, going back to Teddy Roosevelt. Famous so quote from Teddy Roosevelt. The, the, yeah. The famous Ted, Teddy Roosevelt quote. And, uh, you know, we'll get into this with, with Salter. But the question, of course, that looms is, you know, there will be no one like John McCain again, but will there be people in public service, politicians who have the, some of the same principles, that kind of nobility and sense of honor and duty? And we can only hope. <laughs> Yeah. And look, you know, there clearly was an affection there between McCain and Biden. And it does make one wonder if McCain was still with us, what he would be saying and doing right yeah, now. Yeah. On the eve I, I don't have election. any doubt at all that he would be voting for Joe Biden. I guess the bigger question is, would he make that public? And um, he didn't in 2016. I think it's I think we'll, we'll talk about this with Salter, but I think uh, we can assume he did not vote for Donald Trump, but he didn't say that publicly. Of course, he right. was on the ballot that year and uh, he needed Trump voters uh, 
to vote for him for re-election. So he was, uh, you know, he he went far, but he only went so far on some of these issues. He yeah, was still yeah. a man in the arena, but also a man in the political arena, and uh, and had to cut uh, corners uh, when he when he needed to. Yeah, I mean, there's actually a line in the in the Salter book about McCain about some of the compromises he made uh, the last time he was up for re-election, and I think he talks about you know, wanting that last, uh, you know, snatching that last six years of history. Right. Um, and the point being that, you know, uh, you make some compromises and you still have an opportunity to shape history. And he was someone who was able to shape history. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, book that Mark Salter's written and uh, a fascinating talk we're going to have with him. But before we do that, there's the presidential race uh, on Tuesday, but there's also the battle for control of the Senate. Uh, we've got Rick Klein of ABC News, their political director, and Brian Murphy of McClatchy, who's following very closely the very key race in North Carolina. So let's get to it. Now to talk about how it looks for control of the U.S. Senate and uh, key Senate races, we've got Rick Klein, the political director for ABC News and the co-host of the Powerhouse Politics podcast, and also to talk about one of the most closely watched Senate races in the country, the one in North Carolina, we have Brian Murphy, the Washington correspondent for both the Charlotte Observer and the Raleigh News and Observer. Rick and Brian, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Rick, let's start off with you. How many Senate races are in play right now? I think back of the envelope, you're talking now at about about a dozen potentially in play. Uh, a and, dozen. And that, yeah, and that's that's a big number, and I'm being kind of generous in the in play category because I think that includes a few that at this stage are, are probably close to settled. But uh, uh, you know, walking through it, you, you realize that you know Democrats went into the cycle with what they thought was a pretty rough map. They didn't have a lot of places where uh, Hillary Clinton had won and you had a Republican. I think there's only two of those uh, of those instances in, in Maine and Colorado. So they were they were fighting in red states. But we have seen just you know a tipping of momentum in the direction of Democrats, uh, a huge influx of cash that's reshaped races uh, that you thought would never be in play. I think that's been a big factor in putting uh, South Carolina and the Georgia races on the map beyond the ones that we expected. And you stand here, Democrats, a couple days out, knowing that they need to net either three or four, depending on whether they take the presidency as well, knowing that they're likely to lose one in the Doug Jones race, that puts them at having to win a net four or, or, or a total of four or five races. And that's very doable. And you know, our friends over at 538 think it's more likely than not. You know, Looking at the polling number, and it's been consistent, there, there's enough places that are on the map for the Democrats to do some real damage. And um, if not to take the majority, they'll come darn close and, uh, and wonder why they didn't, given where things stand Well, today. looking at the polls right now, Rick, which races, because you know, this fluctuates a little bit, which races do you think Democrats have the best chances of flipping right now to get to that four or five number? 
Yeah, I think I think probably the the, the first couple to to fall, if you're looking at this from most likely to least, uh, would be Arizona, where Martha McSally's in real trouble against against Mark Kelly and consistently down. Uh, Susan Collins in Maine in an absolute dogfight, uh, and I don't think the Supreme Court confirmation this week helped her in any way. Probably hurt her. Cory Gardner in Colorado has been fighting from behind very consistently and has been squeezed in a race that that you know, it's, it's it's difficult because he can't abandon the. Republican base, even though you'd think you know moving to the center would be the right strategy. And I know we're going to talk a lot about North Carolina, but uh, the, the, the Tillis-Cunningham race, even despite some really crazy headlines in, 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 down the stretch that, uh, that Brian knows well about, has still maintained a, a little bit of an edge for Cunningham. And then I th- look, kind of put right behind that the Joni Ernst race in Iowa uh, and, and maybe even the Montana race uh, behind that. Uh, and I didn't even talk about Georgia, where- You know, the Georgia, I want, let's talk about- about Georgia because I don't understand Georgia how this is working. We have two Senate races. You need a majority to win, which means fifty percent or more. But the likelihood is this could go into a runoff for one or both of them. Explain the Georgia situation for us. Yeah, it's it's wild, and they're two races, and they're technically two different types of races. One of them is a special election, kind of a jungle primary. But, but under Georgia law, if you win outright in that jungle primary, you win the seat. And in that race, you have just a, a wild situation where Kelly Loeffler, who is the, 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 the appointed senator there, uh, has another Republican running. And as long as you have the two Republicans taking away from each other, you're cannibalizing their votes and you're giving an opportunity, at least, to the Democrat to break through. Now, most people think that's not going to happen, that one of those two Republicans is going to go into the general election, and that would seem more likely. And in the other race, you have a more traditional, you know, Democrat versus Republican race. But in that case, you have third party candidates who are taking away some of the vote share. And um, the question there becomes, does John Ossoff, is he able to, in this, in this race against, uh, against Senator Purdue, is he able to crack 50% in the first round? Most people think the best chance the Democrats have would be hitting that 50% threshold and ending it before you get to a, a runoff. But I, you know, I don't know what to expect in the January runoff. Imagine if the control of the Senate's in, in play. Imagine if we have a wild transition. All of the different things that could happen. Georgia is always a hot spot when it comes to, to voter suppression claims. So I think all bets are off about the possibility of one or even two runoffs in January. But again, the best bet may be just the first round for the Democrats. Yeah, I think the speculation is is that the Democrats would be in a weaker position in those yeah. races if it goes to a runoff, particularly if the Senate is in play, if that would be the deciding case. So just to be clear, both races, you need to have 50%, even the per, uh, Purdue-Ossoff race would go to a runoff if neither one gets 50? That's right. That's right. That's that's their law. It's a quirky thing. And it's just a weird situation where both of those races happen to be on the ballot at the same time. So but with yes, third you, parties, we could yeah. have two runoff races right. in Georgia that's in right. January. And, and, and when, remember, when is the when's the date for the January? I believe it's January 6th. It's the first huh. it's the first week of January. It's after the, the new Congress uh, the, uh, right. it, it takes the oath, which is kind of wild in its own way. And keep in mind, you know, Joe Biden just spent the day in Georgia this week. It take a whole day on the campaign trail. It's a state that, um, you know, hasn't gone Democratic at the presidential level since 1992. And the fact that anyone would now consider it and play at the presidential level 
you know, much less these, these Senate candidates and the, and the crazy machinations involved in that. It is just another wild card. Democrats may not need it. They may not need either one of those. They could get to, they could get to 50 or even 51 without Georgia, but that will be a tempting target uh, all the way through. All right, let's go to North Carolina. Brian, uh, that's been quite the race there. It looked like uh, Cal Cunningham, the Democrat, had a clear edge until a few weeks ago when he was hit with a uh, sex texting scandal. Tell us what that was and tell us what the race looks like right now. Sure. Uh, yeah, by the, at the end of September, all three debates on, on October 1st was the final debate. And Cunningham had had a lead throughout the summer into the end of September, into October 1st. It looked like he had a five, six point edge. Uh, October 2nd was a wild day in North Carolina politics, one that won't be soon forgotten. Uh, Senator Tillis announced that he had tested positive for the coronavirus, having been at the super spreader event uh, for Amy Coney Barrett at the White House. Hours later, the Cunningham campaign confirmed the authenticity of sexed messages, for, for lack of a better term, um, between Cal Cunningham and a California woman uh, who also happens to be married to a military veteran, an injured military veteran. And it just sort of set this whole race off of its axis. The, the woman eventually confirmed to the Associated Press that they actually had an, a, an affair, a relationship beyond the text messages. And then... Um, there have been other reports, unconfirmed at this point, that Cunningham had a second affair with a Raleigh woman. Cunningham has basically not spoken to the press since October 9th during you know, what, what's been termed a disastrous press conference in which he was asked by me and, and several others if there were going to be more women that came out. He said, I've said all I'm going to say about it and has not spoken publicly to the media. Obviously, what did he statements. say about it? He, he has apologized to his, to his family. He said that he's caused great hurt to them. He apologized to Democrats, you know, more broadly at, at, a, at a previous time, uh, but he has not sort of confirmed any of the details about either affair. He has not talked about anything in particular other than to say that, you know, it's an issue between him and his family and not an issue necessarily for the campaign. Um, he said, I've said all I'm going to say about it, uh, which I thought was a line, but, but apparently that is all he's going to say about it before uh, voters vote. And yet his numbers have not cratered. I mean, there, may, there is some tightening. What's the latest? Right. The, the race is down to about a two-point race. So I said earlier that it was about a six-point race at the, end of, at the end of September. It's about a two-point race now. Uh, what's interesting is, is Till, uh, Cunningham's unfavorable ratings have, have obviously increased. So he's less popular. But his numbers in the polls, and we'll, we'll see if they, those bear out, have not actually moved. He stayed basically where he was. What... What does that well, suggest to you that the dynamic here, what are the, the, the dynamic here is that this race, like so many of these Senate races, have been nationalized? Right. Well, what's changed in the race is, is Tillis's numbers have actually improved. And so that, that's allowed him to close the gap. And I think we expected some of that. Tillis uh, had gotten on the wrong side of some of the Trump base earlier in, in his Senate term. We figured some of those Republicans were going to come home. We've also seen there, there are two third party candidates, a libertarian candidate and a constitution party candidate on the ballot. We've seen their numbers start to decline a little bit, which you would assume are people going back to Tillis. Uh, but, but of course, this has been nationalized. I mean, Rick just did a great job running through all of the, all the Senate races. But for most of the summer um, and into the fall, this was seen as the tipping point race. This was seen as the race that would determine control of the, of the Senate. And so, yeah, I, I think it's been nationalized in a way. We've seen tremendous early voter turnout in North Carolina. Already more than 3.6 million votes have been cast, including, you know, close to a million that were cast before, before the allegations of, of the sex scandal came out. 
I'm assuming that neither Biden uh, nor Kamala Harris uh, have uh, any plans to campaign with Cunningham. They've both been in the state and Cunningham has not appeared at those events. In fact, the governor, Roy Cooper, a Democrat who's up for reelection, was caught on a, on a hot mic telling Biden that he thought they could get Cunningham over the line. And obviously the situation was frustrating. That was caught on a hot mic d- during one of uh, Biden's appearances in North Carolina. One big issue, of course, is if the Democrats do get back control of the Senate, will they do away with the filibuster? Will they vote to expand the Supreme Court? What has, I want to ask Rick, uh, what other Senate Democratic candidates are saying nationally, but what has Cunningham said, if anything, on this? Uh, Cunningham has said, he has said that he's not in favor of of expanding the number of Supreme Court justices. Uh, He's been pretty consistent on that, used it as a way of saying, I will stand up to my party if I get to Congress. And so has said he does not want to expand that. Cunningham also ran for the Senate in 2010. And at that time, and and he's kept a, a fairly consistent position on the filibuster since then, saying that he's in favor of a talking filibuster in that if you want to filibuster something, fine, but you've got to stand on the Senate floor and talk about it for days or months or, or whatever the case may be, which would be a, a slight change to the current filibuster, which just allows a vote and then the legislation has stopped. But he has not called for the, elimin- the complete elimination of the filibuster. Rick, uh, other Democratic Senate candidates, where have they come down on this one? They don't want to go there. I mean, it, it, Joe Biden doesn't either. And there's, there's a reason for that. And, and keep in mind, if the Democrats win the Senate, they are not going to do it on the backs of a bunch of AOC style, Bernie Sanders style, Elizabeth Warren progressive. They're going to win in places and with candidates that are very purple. And the centrist model of, I mean, look, if, you know, if John Hickenlooper is a senator after a governor, Steve Bullock, again, these are guys that governed in purple or, or red states, they are not going to be kind of, you know, burn everything down style progressives. And, you know, I actually think what they do on the other side depends a little bit on the margin. You know, a 50-50 Senate where Joe Biden's vice president, Kamala Harris, the tie-breaking vote, the Democrats are, you know, in control of the Senate, no doubt. But, a 50-50 margin, they're not going to be able to have the votes to, to radically change Senate procedures or expand the Supreme Court. The centrists there now, I mean, you know, good luck convincing Joe Manchin of that on the on the other side of the of the election. But if they go crazy run the table, you know, if Doug Jones hangs on, uh, and if in addition to the states we're talking about today, uh, Lindsey Graham loses in South Carolina, and uh, the Democrats could even pick up Alaska. I mean, there, there, are, there are wild scenarios that get you, you know, not just to 50 or 51, but to 53, 54. That to me is a riper environment for saying, okay, now we can do some bigger structural things. And, you know, one of the ironies of the race that Joe Biden will have to confront if he's elected is that he will have campaigned as a moderate, as a relative moderate, a kind of return to normalcy type, but he won't have won that way or not exclusively that way. And it will be because he gets a lot of progressive support that he's going to be pushed to the left on this and a whole range of issues and have to at least do something, at least nominally, to nod to the fact that so many progressives out there are just frankly pissed off with how the Senate's been operating for a long time. Rick, what is it? What would it take to get to a 53-54 Senate majority? You'd need a, a real blue wave, right? And what does that mean in terms of, you know, just roughly in your view, in terms of what kind of electoral victory Biden would have to have? 
Yeah, I, you know, it doesn't always match up because I think in some of these cases, I think, you know, you know, I don't think South Carolina is at play at the presidential level, but a world where Lindsey Graham loses is a, is a world where there's, you know, North Carolina, to stop on Brian's terrain for a second, that definitely goes blue at the presidential level, to my mind, if South, if South Carolina is, is even close at the Senate level, if that makes sense. So I think right. the, you know, the, trends that, the trends carry over. Similarly, Iowa, you know, if, it's, if it flips at the presidential level, you know, it'll flip at the Senate level. So these things are, are very, much, very much interrelated. And I, you know, I, don't think, I don't think Joe Biden's going to win Montana, but, but Steve Bullock might. So the, the kind of thing we're talking about is that's the scenario that gets you closer to 400 electoral votes instead of 300. If that's the scenario where we've been talking a lot about Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and then you can expand a little bit into Arizona, North Carolina, Florida. You know, those are the kind of the six that I have my, that I have my eye on for a long time. But you can easily you know, I don't know easily, but you can imagine a scenario where you add Georgia, you add Iowa, you add Ohio, you add Texas, and Texas, yes, Texas, and and if and if those all flip, and you see that kind of a, of a blue wave, that's a much different mm-hmm. scenario. And you know, I I think probably too much is made of the idea of this is a mandate, and what because I don't I don't think Biden would want to govern that way anyway. But it does in in some ways put more pressure on a Biden administration to move more, you know, more progressive priorities more quickly if you have that kind of an absolute wipeout for the Republican Party. I'd like to go back to Brian, because I just noticed there's a Reuters poll out today that had uh, Cunningham only up one. So uh, bottom line here, do you sense that Tillis actually has momentum at this point? And I'm going to ask you to go out on a limb and tell us what your gut tells you about what it's going to look like on Tuesday, both in that Senate race and who carries North Carolina in the presidential. Yeah, a, a couple of things. Tillis is barnstorming the state ever since the, the vote for Amy Coney Barrett. He's been back in the state. He had events with Mike Pence, events with Ted Cruz. He's, he's with the president today in Fayetteville. He has Nikki Haley campaigning for him over the last two days, Saturday and Sunday. I think that is a, a base tactic to try to generate, you know, some more enthusiasm out of the base and, and hope that it, it carries him. Uh, there was a poll out yesterday, a CBS poll that had Cunningham up six. So it, it's really hard to tell. I think it may come down to the presidential election in North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina has not split its presidential and Senate vote in any election since 1968. And so in 2008, when President Obama carried the state, Kay Hagan won. In 2016, when Donald Trump carried the state, Richard Burr won. So I think those are very, very closely tied. The number I'm keeping an eye on is black turnout. North Carolina has about 21% uh, African-American population. Right now, the percentage of voters who have voted is lower. Black turnout is about 19%, 20% right now. Democrats would like to get that up to 22 23% of the electorate. If it stays under 20, I could see both Trump and Tillis winning very, very narrow victories. I wanted to just bring uh, Rick back in for a second because you, you mentioned uh, Wisconsin and uh, your network, along with the Washington Post, had, had that eye-popping poll in Wisconsin uh, yesterday that had Biden up by 17 points. Um, and then later in the day, there was a Marquette University Law School poll that had him up five points, which is more in line with what most of the polling has been. First of all, I actually commend the ABC Washington Post poll for putting that poll out because a lot of pollsters, you know, when they see polls that look like they could be outliers, they don't do it. There's a lot of hurting that goes on. But what do you make of, of that poll? And, um, at this point, do you, do you think it's an outlier or is it, I mean, and, or how do you tell? Well, thank you, know, thank you for the commendation. I, I, you know, to my mind, yeah, we saw those results. They're eye-popping results. 
you do a gut check, of course, but it was never a consideration that we would sit on it or massage it in any way. That's why you poll, is you want to find things out you don't have the answer to. So, you know, yes, we were surprised because we see the same things that everything else. But I'll tell you, I talked to our pollster about it. We kicked the numbers a bunch of different ways, you know, and I think we tried to explain as much as we could why, why it is. My friends and colleagues over at 538 will, will tell you that, you know, maybe one in every 20 polls is going to be just out there. You know, it might be an outlier. Sure, it could be. It might also be, you know, that we picked up on something. I, you know, do I think that Joe Biden is going to win by 17 points next Tuesday in Wisconsin? No, I, I don't. But do I think there's something going on on the ground that public polling is picking up, uh, particularly in these places that are getting, you know, just racked by COVID? I mean, well, I was going to say, top. well, yeah. that, that was my first reaction. You know, this this came at a time, I think the same day or the day after that yeah. 65 people died in Wisconsin, 5,000 new cases in Wisconsin. Yep. You know, so that that probably isn't a coincidence. Yeah, I, I, and to the extent that we could see a difference because we were in the field at the same time in Wisconsin and Michigan, which is you know very they're the next to each other, they're demographically similar. Uh, they, they, you know, it's unlikely that one you know goes for one candidate by seven and the other for seventeen. That's an unlikely result. But one of the biggest differences on the ground has just been the extent to which COVID has been dominating life in Wisconsin. It's just a bigger deal than it is in Michigan, and and I think it's possible that the story of the close of this campaign really is the story of the last seven or eight months of this country, which is COVID is everywhere. And, it, and when, it, particularly in states that are going through second wave, third wave, whatever you call it right now, if it's disrupting your life in a big way right now, and you're seeing a president go out there and do these massive rallies and fight with Anthony Fauci and uh, continue to say that we're, you know, we're rounding, rounding the turn, it just doesn't fit with people's lives. And you know, to me, I've never seen such a disparity just in the imagery of a campaign. You have one candidate who's actively trying not to get big crowds in Joe Biden and another who is trying to pack him in as much as he can to, to make a point. So I, to me, that's what you learn from this, this kind of a poll. I always tell people, you know, consult the polling averages, you know, don't, don't take any one poll, even our poll, which we pay a lot of money for, I really believe in, even don't take that to the bank and say that's everything because that's going to leave you, you know, down a lot of false trails. Don't, don't forget the Wisconsin Badgers had to cancel their game, the, the game before the election because of a COVID outbreak with their football team. So yeah. it, it's affecting everybody's life in, in Wisconsin. So, Rick, uh, you've said the, um, the most likely Democratic pickups now are Arizona with McSally losing to Kelly, Collins in Maine, Gardner in Colorado, Ernst in Iowa and possibly Tillis in North Carolina. But there are a few that the Republicans hope to get some traction in. You know, obviously, Doug Jones endangered in Alabama to Tuberville. But what about some of these other races in Michigan, Minnesota, a couple of others where Republicans have some hopes? I think any any analysis, Democrat or Republican, that I've, you know, the people I've been talking to, they've assumed that Doug Jones is is going to lose. And, that, you know, they bake that into the calculations. I think that's by far the most likely loss for the Democrats. After that, I, I really think the Michigan race is the one to focus on, maybe the only one. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a believer really in, in Minnesota, maybe I'll be wrong, or really any of the other places where Democrats are playing defense. But it's really interesting in Michigan because you have a candidate in Gary Peters who just frankly isn't that well known, you know, comes off as kind of a generic Democrat, um, is running against a young African-American candidate who was highlighted in multiple trips by the president and, you know, is kind of, you know, viewed as a rising star for some time in John James. And there's been some conflicting polling that would suggest that, you know, maybe 
maybe James is running ahead of even where the president is in Michigan. He's been pretty loyal to Trump, but he's found some areas to, to, to put his own profile out there. And, you know, I think we won't have heard the end of John James or the last of John James, if, even if he were to lose. He, he really is someone that has a lot of hype around him and a lot of it, you know, very much deserved. I'm interested, you know, in races like that, and I think, I think North Carolina is another one where it could play out. To me, this is the kind of environment that is conducive to ticket splitting. I can imagine a lot of voters in a Michigan saying, you know what, I'm a Republican, but this Trump guy enough, end it. But I'm going to park my vote over on the Senate to, you know, to assure divided government, to allow, to say, okay, yeah, that, that's, where my, that's where the other priority is. And I think, I think Tillis... You know, Tillis could benefit from some of that too. And to me, that you know, and Brian's the expert on this. I, I don't want to. I don't want to come back to the North Carolina territory. But to, to me, at least, a late sexting scandal is a license to voters to split that ticket. And you know, if you had someone who was maybe lukewarm all along on Tom Tillis, you know, this is a, a reason to, to to feel better about yourself as a Republican. So it's possible that you know that you've got you know this a couple of places where the Democrats will have you know left something on the table. I want to ask both of you about something that Brian mentioned earlier. Brian was talking about the black turnout in North Carolina. And I've been struck by how Biden seems to be underperforming among um, African-American voters, especially since he's where he is now because of black voters in, in South Carolina. I just saw a Florida poll, I think. I can't remember whose it was that had Trump getting 14 percent of the black vote there. I think he... He was in low double digits in Texas. What's going on there? First of all, Brian, how much of the black vote do you think Trump will get in North Carolina? And then, Rick, uh, maybe you could just give a kind of a broader perspective on that question. Yeah, all the polling data indicates that he's probably not going to get to double digits, somewhere eight or below among African-American voters. I think the real question is turnout. Is there enough, the percentage of the population, the percentage of the voting population, is there enough, are there enough African-American votes? To, I mean, if you're winning nine out of every 10 African-American votes, you obviously want as many African-Americans to vote as possible. In 2008, Obama did win the state. Oh, the Obama-Biden ticket won the state. Black turnout was about 22% of the electorate. That actually pushed up to 23% in 2012. But in 2016, it was below 21%. And so I think, you know, Biden and, and Harris, obviously, is the first HBCU first woman of color on a, on a major ticket. She's the first HBCU grad. There are lots and lots of HBCUs in North Carolina. They've done everything they can to, to get that part of the segment of the population motivated to, and to get to the polls. But right now in early voting with more than 3.6 million votes cast, African-American percentage of the vote is under 20%. Do we know the uh, party registration breakdown on those uh, early votes? We do. We do. It, it, Democrats account for about 38.6%, uh, Republicans for 31%, and unaffiliateds, which are actually the second most populous registration in North Carolina, they're ahead of Republicans, are at 30% or 29.6% in North Carolina. Democrats had a huge edge in, in mail-in voting, but uh, Republicans have been steadily chipping away at that in early voting. And uh, one... Other big North Carolina question, as I understand it, they are going to count mail-in votes as long as nine days after the election, if I understand this correctly, and the Supreme Court has just blessed that? Yeah. The original date was November 6th, uh, which is the Friday after the election. That, that's been extended to November 12th. I don't know how many, how many ballots that's going to impact because the ballots still need to be postmarked on or before Election Day. 
Don't they start counting? Have they, when do they start counting? Yes, uh, um, North Carolina will have will process all of its early votes as soon as polls close. And so North Carolina will not be a state that is waiting and waiting and waiting to count votes. You will have a large percentage of, of the vote total in on election night. Now, if, if the race is extremely close in, in either the president or the Senate, then the, those extra ballots that come in after the 6th, but before the 12th that previously would not have been counted, but now will be counted, you know, may make a difference. But I think unless it's very, very tight, we should have a pretty good idea on election night. Well, will there be any way to calculate how many outstanding mail-in ballots there are? That has been my number one question because more than one. What's the answer? <laughs> more than 1.5 million people have requested mail-in, you know, absentee ballots. About 800, more than 800,000 have returned them. So that leaves a universe of about 700,000 ballots out there. However. Just because you requested an absentee ballot doesn't mean you have to vote by mail. You could, you could easily decide to go early vote. You could vote on election day. The state board of elections has assured us that at some point on election day, they will have a number for us of you know, how many ballots are still outstanding and those people haven't voted in some other fashion. But right now, it's just hard to know when we'll get that number. Well, it does strike me that if these both races, presidential and Senate, are really close, and they could be, we could be waiting for nine days to get the Absolutely. outcome. Absolutely. Tillis yeah. won the race uh, in 2014 by less than 50,000 votes. Yeah. So I've got one last question for Rick, which is your decision desk at ABC is going to be uh, forecasting a winner in the national election and in Senate races as well. Just for our audience, we could just nerd out a little bit here. And if you could explain that process, you're not actually deciding who's won, you're forecasting, right? And and, And how is that done? What what what's all the different what all the data that goes into uh, those calls? Sure, yeah. I mean, we, we make projections. We don't make predictions. We don't make you know. We don't. We certainly don't render legal judgment. That's up to every state. It takes them you know in some cases several weeks before there are certified results. But what uh, first of all, the decision desk itself. You know, it's a room that I'm not even part of. It's separated. It's segregated from the, the from the news gathering operation from all the political reporting. They don't care what I'm hearing from sources in the Trump campaign or the Biden campaign. They don't care. Uh, about something that's a fire on Twitter. They don't even care what other networks have made projections. What they care about is the data. And there's a couple of different data streams they get. One is the exit poll. And it's a much maligned product. It has changed a lot over the years. This year, with all these new changes, including a lot of pre-election phone polling to supplement the exit poll, because so many more voters are voting absentee, it's not just people coming and going. But also, I mean, even, but you you can't even do it in person in the way that uh, it used to be done in person because of the pandemic. It's definitely harder. You know, Edison, which does the the exit polling for all the networks, it's one, you know, one exit poll that that everyone relies on, um, has has changed this methodology. They made a lot of changes during the the primaries to try to, to... they were confident they can be in enough places to get a meaningful information. But that's, so that's one data stream. But it's not, we're not going to make projections based on exit polls. That's, that, I think we've, that the lesson's been learned yeah, a long yeah. time ago. But then the data starts to flow in. And after the poll closing in a, in a given state, you get information. And every state does it differently. And our decision desk knows that and expects that in some states, you're not going to get um, any of the early vote uh, until very late in the day. Uh, some days it's, it's by county. 
but they're looking for all that data. They're looking at sample precincts, which is sometimes a very democratic precinct, very Republican precinct, or a, or a, a classic you know, battleground swing precinct. And you, you want to see where the numbers are going, what's turnout looking like. And they plug this all into mathematical models that I can't begin to understand. And it's a room full of academics. They've been doing it for decades. And all they care about is the data. And they will look at this. And when it gets down to you know, a 99.5% certainty, I think they use, that a result is going to, to be what it is, they will make a projection. And we will project individual states. We'll, you know, and we'll say, and George Stephanopoulos will be on the air and saying ABC News can project that state X has gone to candidate Y. And we add up until someone gets to 270 electoral votes. And when does your decision desk at this point think that they will be able to to project the presidential? I mean, are they expecting to be able to do it election night or more likely a few days after that? They don't, it's, it depends on how close election it is. So, you know, yeah. if, if it's a, frankly, it's a blowout, they'll have lots of information from lots of places that if, even if he's not at 270, a candidate isn't at 270, it'll be very clear who's getting there, right? I mean, you can even take just a handful of states and let, let, you know, if Joe Biden wins Florida, if Joe Biden wins North Carolina, if Joe Biden wins Iowa, the race Ohio. is over if Biden wins Florida or North Carolina. Now, yeah, yeah, look, I mean, there's almost no path. Now, will he technically be at 270 votes? That may take a while because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot, you know, we're not going to have Alaska results for, you know, for several days, for instance. So, if, you know, if those three votes matter, it, just, it really depends on how well, close Well, then you'll is. be in a, in a kind of limbo land where you can say Trump doesn't really have a path here, but we're still waiting for you know, mm-hmm. uh, results in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And so we can't actually project until we get those results, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think we'll just, we would just be honest in our analysis of all of that. Say, look, that's a big blow to a candidate's chances, that state. You know, no one has clinched the presidency. No one has 270 electoral votes. But, you know, this is what we know. This is what we can say. Right, and and I, right. I, think, I think the more we can do to tell the audience that, just because the voting is taking a while doesn't mean there's something wrong necessarily, um, that there's nothing magical about all votes being counted on election night, despite what President Trump says about it. That's just the system has never worked that way. It's not going to start to work that way. There have been massive changes to people's lives. There are massive changes to the legal structure around voting. Those things are those things are real. We're preparing for all of those eventualities. And in some ways, you know, our job is as simple or as complicated as it always was, just to, to keep a focus on the data, what we know and what we can say about it point by point by point. Last question for Rick. Every race, every election year, there's some upset that we didn't see coming in Senate races. One or two that uh, surprise everybody on election night. If you had to predict now, what are the most likely upsets that we're not uh, yeah, I think the big right surprises, South Carolina, we talked about that briefly, but, you know, Lindsey Graham losing would be, a, you know, a, a huge event, obviously. And then, you know, you know, just just for good measure to throw another one in there, Texas. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about it. John Cornyn is clearly worried about the numbers in Texas. They're, you know, the early turnout numbers are through the roof throughout the state. A lot of younger voters, a lot of first-time voters. You know, I think a lot of people like myself thought, man, if Beto O'Rourke couldn't beat Ted Cruz in Texas in the midterms, you know, Texas is just not in play yet for Democrats because Beto was this cool factor and Ted Cruz was, you know, Ted Cruz. And if someone couldn't break through then, it couldn't happen. But there's something stirring in Texas. And I've had a number of people say to me in the last couple of days, they just wouldn't be shocked to see uh, Texas, um, Kamala Harris is, is going to be campaigning there on, on Friday. Wouldn't be shocked to see Texas 
turn at the at the presidential level. And you know that could be a, a matter of ticket splitting, but MJ Hagar, you know, would certainly benefit from that as well. So those are my two. And it's hard, always hard to make up to to, to really know the makeup of that electorate. Yeah, you so. don't know, you don't know. And and I, and I tell I, I caution against it all the time. There's a lot of partisan data firms out there, a lot of good data, a lot of bad data. Bottom line is we know people are interested in this election. We don't know, you know, who they voted for. You can't know that. It's secret ballot. You also don't know how many people are waiting for election day. That's the big unknowable in all of this in every state is that you can vote on election day. Uh, and and there's almost you know more people will vote earlier than than it used ever to be before. the way you always did. I know it's just yeah. crazy, right? It's insane. You vote on election, but no, that, but right. that's the thing is that you you can't know what that universe looks like until it happens. So let's embrace the uncertainty. You know, pop the popcorn. You know, enjoy the ride. It's going to be a long <laughs> right. night. Well, we will know soon enough. Um, Rick and Brian, thanks for joining us, and uh, we will all be watching ABC on election night. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. We now have with us Mark Salter, longtime aide to Senator John McCain and author of the new book about McCain, The Luckiest Man. John, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me on. So just a fascinating and moving portrait of your old boss and uh, colleague and co-author, Senator McCain. There's a lot to talk about here, but I guess given that we're in the closing days of a presidential election, the McCain-Donald Trump relationship or lack of relationship is something that obviously leaps out and we all remember, but you've captured it quite brilliantly in this book. What do you imagine your old friend and colleague, John McCain, would be saying right now about the election? Well, you know, uh, he he didn't vote for Trump the last time. And as I've said on other occasions, Trump isn't the kind of guy that improves on longer acquaintance, you know. And so I think, you know, I, I assume he'd be voting for his old friend, Joe Biden, and, and would make no bones about it, would be my guess. But uh I can't, you know, I can't say for certain. I'm, I'm, I can't say certainly he wouldn't be voting for Trump. But you know, do you think publicly he would be endorsing Biden? Uh, that's a good question. He didn't say who he voted for in 2016. He just said, "I'm not voting for Trump." That's a good question. I kind of think he would recognize. He's not long before he died. He authorized a statement in his name. It was the harshest statement I think he's ever made about a U.S. president, which came in reaction to the Helsinki summit when uh, Trump took the word of Putin over over our own intelligence services. He was appalled by that. And uh, Trump's gotten worse. You know, it's gotten worse. And, you know, I'd like to think he would, you know, as his widow did, that he would make clear that there are just really two choices in this election. It's a binary choice. And Donald Trump is hurting this country badly. He's a clear and present danger. And uh, I, I would, but I can't, you know, I've sort of been reluctant to say I know 200, 100% certitude that he would. I, I don't know that, but I'd like to think he would. Back in 2016, I think uh, you got a call from him when he, he asked you to write up a statement after Trump criticized the Khan family, the Gold Star family. And it's a, it's a really strong, very powerful statement what he asked you to do was to say at the end of that that he was withdrawing his support for Donald Trump. Correct. And in the end, he changed his mind. He didn't do that. Yeah. What was? What do you think was the, the thought process there for him? Well, he was genuinely outraged. Obviously, you can imagine a guy, you know, from his family, a career military officer from a family of career military officers, uh, 
in the, the amount of time he spent in the company of American soldiers. Uh, he was appalled by the way Trump treated the family and he was prepared to unendorse it. He called me, I was on my way back from a trip, about a six hour drive from, from the New Hampshire-Vermont border to Maine. I said, yeah, I got it. You got to wait till I get home. It'll be a few hours. And uh, he told me what he wanted me to say in it. And uh, when I got back, he said, uh, other of his advisors had advised him, no, you were the party's nominee in 2008. You know, you've got a responsibility to let, you know, not get in this guy's way or something to that effect. And he's also, he had a somewhat competitive primary of his own. It wasn't for another couple of weeks, I think. And they, they factored that into their reasoning too. He was unhappy that he did and it bothered him and bothered him and bothered him. So that when the Access Hollywood tape came out, I think the news had been like 30 seconds, on for 30 seconds. And I got a call from him, I'm on endorsing him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the funniest part was, I, you know, uh, Lindsay or somebody gave him, gave Trump uh, McCain's phone number and after he was inaugurated and he called McCain on his cell phone and, uh, and litigated the whole unendorsement, you know, as if he was trying to get McCain to apologize or something. He said, no, I'm not gonna apologize for you. And he kept going at him over the Khan family. The way you treated the Khan family was wrong. You know, he goes, well, that's not why you unendorsed me. You unendorsed me over that Access Hollywood tape. And he goes, that's what I really unendorsed you over, you know? It's, One of the moments that I think for a lot of Americans, you know, was sort of the first time in some ways that people sort of saw sort of how outrageous Donald Trump could be and mean-spirited was, I can't remember if it was on Morning Joe. I remember watching it live, I think, was where he attacked McCain and and said, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was basically, I like people who didn't get captured. Yeah. What was McCain's reaction to that? You know, he was uh, sort of unruffled by it, to be honest with you. I got worked up about it. Both McCain and I had fought tempers and... uh, and I think I called him on the phone and, you know, you know, that son of a bitch, you know, and uh, McCain was calm down. You know, he goes, all weekend long, people are going to be talking about what a war hero I am. That's not my problem. That's his problem. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so he, he never, he never let that stuff get to him, but boy, like the cons that got to him. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, look, on so many levels, McCain, his life, his career, he's the anti-Trump. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, duty, patriotism, loyalty, service to your country, all the values that he embodied in so many ways. Uh, he was the antithesis of Trump. And I didn't realize this, but his disdain for Trump goes way back, you know, long before he was a, a presidential candidate or a presence of the Republican Party, goes back to hearings when McCain was in the House about Indian casinos. Yeah, uh, he, he, McCain that was, story. It, it goes back to the early 90s. McCain was in the Senate. He was in the Senate, sorry. He, he, he was a defender of the tribe's rights to have casinos, to build casinos on reservations. And Trump at that time was busy bankrupting a couple of casinos in Atlantic City and was going to testify to, at a House Indian, you know, it's not a select committee in the House. I think it's a subcommittee, the Interior Committee. I'm getting very arcane. I'm like, a, <laughs> like an old Hill guy gets. But, uh, they were having a hearing on uh, Indian gaming and Trump was testifying, wanted to testify against it because at that point it was competition for his his casinos. And McCain went over to testify to defend it. And Trump was waiting for him and apparently wanted to talk to him or lobby him on the issue. And so he's sort of beckoning to McCain as McCain walks into the hearing room and, you know, making a bunch of noise and stuff. McCain, McCain. 
you know, and McCain just blows him off and keeps walking. And then uh, finally, Trump bellows across the room, I gave money to your campaign. And McCain just stops, turns around and says, see what that'll get you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, so, you know, he looked at him like we all looked at him then, kind of a tabloid clown from New York, you know, that sensible people shouldn't take seriously. Um, I don't think it was any different or had any different degree of disdain for him than most people probably had for Trump at the time, other than, I guess, the, I guess, uh, unbeknownst, I, I, who've never watched a reality show in my life. I guess I missed the whole Celebrity Apprentice thing where he built up some sort of fan base to help him become president of the United States. But uh, I don't think McCain was a, was a watch that show either. So. so let me ask you about something that happened that, that Trump did after McCain had died. Uh, we, we've spent, I don't know, a couple of hundred hours probably on this podcast talking about Trump's impeachment. And I think you said that, that Ukraine was, was McCain's biggest cause overseas, the Democratic Reform Movement. He went there with Chris, Senator Chris Murphy. He was there for the Maidan protests. He met yeah. with Yanukovych. And I know that, that you, in the book, refrain from speaking on his behalf in, in absentia. But you do lay out sort of the, I think what you call per, the pertinent facts, right. uh, which I think would allow readers to draw some conclusions about how McCain would have felt about the president of the United States essentially extorting Ukraine by withholding military assistance to get his friend Joe Biden investigated. So just tell us, what were those pertinent facts? Well, there were two. I think, you know, McCain was a great, uh, he was a humanitarian, and he was a great one for lending at least moral support to, you know, freedom movements all, all, wherever they occurred. He thought everybody was entitled to the same rights he had, and it mattered to him. And the last sort, and he was he was very romantic about those causes, you know, whether it was, you know, we're all Georgians, you know, when, you know, when, when the Rus Russians invaded Georgia. And, he would get quite carried away, cynic though he was about the world. He was a romantic about his causes. And uh, he went to the Maidan and he's, you know, the first night he was there, they stood in some kind of trade building, which I don't even think is there now. Some trade office looking down at the Maidan and all the people holding up their phone light you know, on their iPhones. Uh, he said it was just, in, you know, half a million to a million people, just indescribably moving, he said. And uh, uh, and the next day he spoke and, you know, he spoke in English, but it was translated simultaneously and even read, you know, from a quoted from a Ukrainian poet and he was received very warmly. And it was an important cause to him. He was all over, not just the Obama administration for not providing uh, lethal assistance, but all over Merkel. He, you know, he went to this conference in in Munich every every February for thirty five or years or so, and would see Merkel there, and you know, get all over her because she was really the impediment to giving the Ukrainians military assistance, and uh, it meant a lot to him. He was very thought very highly of our ambassador over there, and he spent. Uh, the, the one that Trump fired. The, the one, the one that and Marie Yovanovitch. Masha Yovanovitch, who who had her star turn in the impeachment hearing. Yeah. That's right, and who and that was treated so shabbily by, by this administration. But uh, I think not the la his last New Year's, but I think the second, the New Year's before. I don't know. He he spent a New Year's Eve on the front lines with Ukrainian Marines, with our ambassador, Lindsey Graham, and I think Amy, Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> you know, it's, it was just an important, important thing to him. So the idea that the president of the United States would try to blackmail a Ukrainian president to get a dummied up story about Trump's likely Democratic opponent would have driven him crazy. And although, again, I feel honor bound not to say I know for certain McCain, McCain from the grave told me he would you know, go for impeachment. I can't do that. 
I would have been very surprised if he didn't do exactly as his friend Mitt Romney did and be the second one of two Republicans to vote to convict. Another cause that he was passionate about was Syria. Yes. And uh, the uh, Obama administration's uh, refusal to do more or failure to do more to support the rebels fighting yeah. Assad. And uh, that's, in fact, the last time I interviewed with him, it was a, I interviewed him, it was about Syria. And mm-hmm. he told me, and this quite impressed me, uh, about how he had on his desk the photographs, the Caesar photographs uh, of the tortured victims yep. uh, in um, Assad's prisons. You tell the story about the letter he gets towards the end from Samantha Power. Yeah, yeah. Really fascinating. Tell that story. So uh, he was, as I said, his last two great causes were Ukraine and, and Syria, and he got very emotional about Syria. It was breaking his heart. You know, he knew people personally who were killed. You know, um, he had snuck into Syria a couple of times. He admired people who persisted, you know, and who still held on to hope when the odds were really stacked against them. And uh, Syria really had an emotional effect on him. And he he got angry with with all not with a lot of Obama administration officials, even if they weren't talking to him about that particular issue. He would get. You know, she called him. They were friendly. He had read Samantha Power's book, A Problem from Hell, the book about genocide she wrote, was an admirer of of the book and of her and thought she was sort of a kindred spirit in, in you know, the defense of human rights. And, and she, she, want, she called to put in a good word for Blinken. And she called him and, and he worked himself up to a lather as he could do about it, you know, all on Syria, and said, not only will I not vote for him, but you ought to resign on principle, you ought to resign. And I, I didn't even hear about this conversation, to be honest with you. I found out about it when she wrote him a letter when he was, oh, I don't know, three or four months from dying. She sent him a letter and it somehow got routed to me. He was then in Arizona full time and I was going out there regularly. Uh, somehow it got routed to me and I, I sent it out there and then I read it to him the next time I was there. But she recalled this incident and said something along the lines of, I'd never admired you more. You know, there was no one listening. There were no reporters privy to this conversation. You weren't posturing for other politicians or for the cameras or anything. You just cared very much about these people, you know, and uh, it was just very touching. It was touching to read. I got choked up, you know, (laughs) you know, reading it myself, you know, uh, I got choked up when I read it to him, you know, but it's just a, you know, he was that kind of cat. Um, it was, um, if you knew him, you saw there was something special in him, as she did. He's a very sincere guy, you know. Wise ass that he was, you know, cynic that he could be, you know. He was a very sincere person. I think you uh, call him a romantic earlier in this conversation. He yeah. was clearly idealistic. Yeah. He had an emotional and uh sentimental side to him which he wore on his sleeve i think you said he cried during the what was the movie <laughs> ghost, ghost <yeah. laughs> with patrick swayze are there just really few characters like that out there in politics or did he have an ability a, a willingness to show it i mean what where did that come from i think there are people that try to present themselves that way that covet that kind of reputation for authenticity but aren't willing to really pay the price. You know, he wasn't always willing to pay the price, but 
more than most, you know, more than most, he would gamble, you know, I mean, just his, his sense of humor could get him in trouble and, uh, often enough. And, uh, but, you know, he wasn't afraid to show flashes of temper, to be passionate, you know. Um, I mean, I don't know why there's not, I don't know why people in politics aren't more inclined to just be themselves. It's so apparent that the public craves it, craves it, feels deprived of it, feels no one's on the level, they're all fake. You know, I think really that's one of the reasons Biden's numbers, his favorable numbers have sort of creeped up all along. Because whatever Biden's deficiencies are, you can, it's him. You know, he's, he's, he's recognizable as himself. You yeah, know? you know, it's a really interesting question. I've been thinking about this in reading your book, you know, because sort of the impulsive reaction is, well, we don't have a political culture, a political media culture anymore that tolerates that kind of authenticity, that all the the incentive structure with social media and with, you know, tribalism, you know, is all against that. And yet what you're saying, I mean, you know, Joe Biden it may, may be about to become president. Yeah. So is this just a Twitter phenomenon, you know, that yellers are out there and we can hear them? But and, and it's I mean, w what is your sense of that? I think with the sort of the endless news cycle now, it gets harder to be candid, transparent, authentic, whatever you want to call it. It is harder. And I mean, I know we noticed, and I think I write about it, the change from 2000 to 2008. I think I might have, even, I don't know if I put the story in there or not, but I can remember him bouncing around in the back of, you know, a, a bus, you know, and in his Barca lounge, and we're running against the young, super fit, you know, elegant, eloquent, you know, Barack Obama. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're conscious of the image of that a lot of the time. But at one point, we didn't want cameras back there. We just, you know, we'd let the networks in, but they just have to cover it with pen and pencils like everybody else, you know, like, um, you know, which you guys don't object to, right? <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, I remember I got a call from Warren Beatty. You're lighting him all wrong. <laughs> it's, like it's broad daylight. He's in his 70s. You know, he's dead melanoma, so he keeps sunscreen on. He's kind of pale. There's not, not a lot I can do about it. And uh, But he loved sparring with reporters. Never bothered him. Even if he was mad at him, even if he thought he wasn't getting a fair shake from reporters, it was hell trying to restrain him from talking to reporters. I remember yelling. He yelled at, I think, Nicole Wallace one time. If you don't let me talk to those guys, right, I'm going to walk over that tree and point to some tree in the distance and gaggle right there. You know? and, uh, <laughs> some of us well remember the Straight Talk Express in <laughs> yeah. 2000, which was yeah. Yeah. truly a, uh, a phenomenon in American politics. You, yeah. you, pay, you pay a price for it now more because it's everybody's just, they've got to break some, you know, I mean, you turn on CNN, I don't care, you can turn on CNN at two in the morning. Breaking news, you know. I mean, it's yeah. you know, and uh, well, we've we've actually got a clip that I think is worth talking about here sure. because it also sort of goes to his appreciation and affection for the political process. Yeah, uh, and this is the speech he gives on the Republican efforts to do away with right. Obamacare, and um, he speaks to a lot of a lot of what you're talking about. Let's play that clip and talk about it. Stop listening to the bombastic loudmouths on the radio and television and the internet. To hell with them. They don't want anything done for the public good. Our incapacity is their livelihood. Let's trust each other. Let's return to regular order. We've been spinning our wheels on too many important issues because we keep 
trying to find a way to win without help from across the aisle. That's an approach that's been employed by both sides, mandating legislation from the top down without any support from the other side, with all the parliamentary maneuvers that requires. We're getting nothing done, my friends. We're getting nothing done. Let's return to regular order. That's almost like a metaphor for our time and for this election in yeah. some ways. You know, I mean, you obviously served in the body for 30 years or however long it was. And uh, but even before then, he was this Navy's liaison officer to the Senate. So he, he got to got to sort of watch and be mentored by some of the, you know, the real senior members of the Senate, particularly in the Armed Service Committee, you know, uh, Scoop Jackson and John Tower and uh, and Barry Goldwater and others. And uh, he had great affection. He, he told me that the reason he got interested in politics was he would watch these guys, these old bulls, senior members of the Armed Service Committee, just write something on a scrap of paper and hand it to an aide. And, you know, there, there would go, you know, you know, a, a billion dollars to, you know, some defense account just like that. And he said, I realized they had more power than admirals did in the Navy, over the Navy, you know, or over the military than, than flag officers had. But he also watched how, how members of the committee cooperated, collaborated with each other across parties. It didn't, you know, that they were members of the committee first and they had a bill to produce every year. And he prided himself when he was chairman of armed service of getting it out. And it all went, bill gets marked up in committee. It gets voted on in committee. You know, the committee chairman and ranking member go down and defend it on the floor. That was the Senate. What McCain was trying to say is our system set up to produce very, only modest progress on our problems. We ought to be proud of that. We've stopped even producing that because we try to go for 100% when things don't, when if we went by regular order, we would work out, you know, work out our differences, make a little progress on the problems of our day, you know, and we ought to be proud of that. And that's, that's what he was trying. It's a, a speech about having practical humility as you operate in the Senate, but being proud of that role, you know, there was, there was honor in it, ambition enough in it, you know, that, you know, now that we've got a freedom caucus and someday we're going to have a woke caucus on the other side and they're going to demand a hundred percent of everything. We're never going to get a damn thing done. And uh, so Mark, you're supporting Biden I am, this yeah. time around, of course. And the question that hangs over this election and beyond is if Biden wins, as it looks like he's going to do, according to the polls, and the Democrats take back control of the Senate. Will we return to the regular order that John McCain was calling for back then? Will there be a spirit of compromise and bipartisanship? Or have we gone so far that it's just impossible at this point, and a Democratic Washington will be about my way or the highway and sticking it to the Republicans who, who wronged them. Yeah. And just to add to that, because of all the sense that we can't return to regular order and nothing is getting done, will the Democrats, you know, they get rid of the filibuster, expand the Supreme Court, you know, all of those kinds of structural reforms. And what would McCain have thought of that? I think if it's president-elect Biden, I think we can trust that he would want it to be that way. Is it too late? Is it beyond the power of any president to affect it? It may be. If if we did cooperate on a few issues and get some stuff done that, is, you know, that, that involved compromising between party, you know, both parties, I think the, rea the public reaction to it would be after shock, you know, would be, you know, great approval. 
But it's more likely to go, you know, I was listening to an, another, a rival podcast, you know, and I was, Rahm Emanuel was on it. And uh, he was talking about getting rid of the filibuster, you know, to, as a way of redeeming the Senate traditions. Getting rid of the filibuster, we've gotten rid of the executive calendar filibuster. Now, Harry Reid started it and Mitch McConnell finished it with, you know, by applying it to Supreme Court. But that, that, that filibuster was it was one of the one of the remaining inducements for compromise. We still have a legislative filibuster. <laughs> you know, the fact that you can't unless you've got a 60 vote majority, which happens, but not often, you can't get something done, you know, without without getting some buy in from the other party. Over time, that's a good thing. Yes, it slows things down. If you want to be just purely obstructionist, as I think Republicans have been when they were in the minority. Yes, it does slow things down, but it does. There are certain things that have to get done, and it does force compromises and things outlast. Now we're in a situation here where, you know, whatever, tax cuts. One administration comes in and does everything, loads everything on the reconciliation bill. Again, I know I'm getting esoteric in, in my language, but, you know, and avoids the need for 60 votes or something. Well, when the next guy comes in, he can throw all that crap away and do what he wants, you know, by 51 votes. It also puts all sorts of power in the hands of the leader's offices. The great thing about the Senate, you would think, for a lot of these guys that come over for the House, it surely was for McCain, was that every man's a king or every woman's a king, you know, in the Senate, because you can't get a damn thing done except by UC. And I mean, to move from the executive to the legislative calendar, to open up, to move beyond morning business. You'll hear somebody say, I ask unanimous consent to one guy says, object. Everything stops. You have to you have to address that guy's problem. You know, you may go out and get your 60 votes to just, you know, overcome it. But he's a problem you have to address. The, his problem with the, the, the skinny repeal of Obamacare that the Republicans had cooked up when he came back from his cancer surgery was that it was being written entirely by two or three, you know, by leadership staff, you know, the, the committee of jurisdiction, the health committee didn't have any say in the matter. There was no chance for any sort of bipartisan cooperation to address whatever Obamacare's deficiencies were. It's just, you know, it was a political gesture being cooked up by the leaders. Why other senators want to empower the leaders more, it's, then it just becomes the house with longer terms. And there's, and it really is just every election is decisive and we're closer and closer to a not parliamentary because we do have th three branches, but it's getting less hospitable for compromisers, for guys, you know, people that want to get something done. You know, when Medicare was passed, it had enormous buy-in in the 60s from re Republicans. Okay. You, you can't keep doing these major bills that are just one party or the other because the other side undoes them. If you want something to last, some permanent remedy to public policy problems, you really need to get bipartisan support. But Mark, wasn't the Affordable Care Act passed you know, part exclusively part, by Democrats? Part, part of it. Uh, part, part of it was done on it, worse than that. It was part of it was done on reconciliation, which which obviated the need for 60 votes. So so a big chunk of it could be done on but with just a bare majority. But it's in, but my point is it's in constant jeopardy. You know, I mean, it's like well, get if we do things together with a little buy, and if Republicans know well, we lost nine or ten or eleven of our members for Obamacare. You know, they're, they're going to be reluctant. They, they'll, they'll, they won't see the value in trying to do something about it because they don't think they'll succeed. Two relationships I want to ask you about. One is uh, McCain's relationship with Lindsey Graham, probably his closest buddy in the Senate. They traveled the world together. They were uh, allies in so many fights. 
to watch Graham embrace Donald Trump, somebody who McCain had complete disdain for. Give me your insight into that, how Lindsey Graham could go from John McCain's best friend to Donald Trump's biggest supporter in the Senate. I haven't talked to Lindsey about it. Um, obviously, I disagree with you know a lot of the stuff he's done. But uh, I think if Lindsey, I imagine how Lindsey would defend that is I'm, I'm trying to make him 10 percent less uh, damaging you know, whether it's on immigration or, or foreign affairs issues. I, you know, Lindsay would say, I've got influence on Syria. I've stopped him from doing his worst. He hasn't done his worst yet in Syria. He's gotten damn close to it. I'd hate, I'd hate to see the worst, but, um, but I think that's how Lindsay would justify it. Do you think it's a rationalization? Yeah, I tend to think that's a rationalization. Um, I know McCain loved him and uh, he would still be his friend. He wouldn't, I mean, he might have something to say to Lindsay in private, but he would never say that in public. Mm -hmm. The other relationship, of course, was his friendship with Biden. And we started this podcast with uh, McCain's uh, speech, accepting that Liberty Award that Biden gave him in 2017 and the, uh, the, the kind words McCain had about said about Biden. But let's play the introduction that Biden gave to McCain, or at least a clip from it. My mom, and I met John's mom, and he knew my mom. My mom had an expression from the time I was a kid. She'd say, Joey, look at me. Look in my eyes. And I'm not exaggerating. My word is a Biden. She'd say, look at me. She'd say, remember, you are defined by your courage, and you're redeemed by your loyalty. That was her code. You are defined by your courage, and you're redeemed by your loyalty. Courage and loyalty. I can think of no better description of the man we're honoring tonight, my friend John McCain. Yeah, there was a real bond there. Yeah, there was. He was, um, they had known each other since the 70s, um, have been good friends, traveled. Well, they fought over uh, scores of issues and, and sometimes, you know, heatedly. Um, but that that was never a barrier to friendship for McCain. You know, in fact, it was almost an appeal, you know, uh, so, but uh, he, he thought very fondly of him. He traveled quite a bit with him. And, uh, you know, he had been his he had been close to um, Biden's sons. When McCain was the Navy liaison officer, he would escort these Senate delegations overseas. And and Biden was often a member of them. And, and he got to know he got to know his very young sons. And, you know, not long after the tragedy that took their mother and their their infant sister, he grieved the you know, loss of uh, Bo Biden and uh, who, who had the same kind of brain cancer that John had. And one of the first calls John got it was from Biden after he was diagnosed with glioblastoma. It was full of practical advice, who to see, who to talk to, what new treatments there were, that kind of stuff. You know, uh, just a friend who who had sad, sadly had experience with this particular disease and uh, was fe feeling uh, concerned for his friend. And, uh, you know, that meant a lot to him. And I, John, if you played the clip of John, when he's talking about Biden, if you know him, you can see he's fighting, he's fighting tears in that, that speech. But uh he was one, you know, he came out to see him a couple of times when he was sick, say, say goodbye to him at one time. It was, uh, he, he was a pallbearer was with me and others at the funeral. He spoke, spoke at the Phoenix Memorial Service. Uh, 
Yeah, they were good friends, you know, and um, I'm, I'm, I worry sometimes that we sort of, there's, there's too little of that there. McCain was a longtime member of the Senate, but he was also, you know, he, like I said, he worked there when he was in the Navy. He just had a lot of relationships and they're useful from a practical sense when you're a legislator, but they also give your life meaning, greater meaning. And that meant a lot to me. Anybody who's, you know, who knows they're dying or something, you know, that, that's what they're, that's what they're thinking about most of the time. And, um, you know, he was just, they were good friends. Well, it's it's a relationship, and McCain is a figure from what seems now a bygone era, yeah. uh, and we'll see if uh, if it's restored in coming months. The book is The Luckiest Man by Mark Salter. Mark, thanks for joining us, and congrats on the book. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me on.